Good morning and welcome to Big Valley Grace. Whoa, we've got work to do, don't we? Good morning, venue. I'm sure you're glad that I'm here. We're glad you all come to join us. And I joined Pastor Scott in just saying, if you're visiting us or here for the first time, uh, glad that you've come and been a part of Big Valley Grace on a, on a sunny morning, our, our worship gathering. Now, Pastor Rick will be back next week. There was no pastor rapture last couple of weeks. He really is coming back. Uh, he's speaking at a church down south, and he will be uh, back um, next week as we continue our life series, and we're continuing that today. Now, I was gone for uh, um, a while. I got back last Friday, a week ago Friday. Uh, Jill and I, we went to Kauai, and we were celebrating 35 years of wedded bliss. Possibly 20 or 25 years of wedded bliss, and we were working on it the rest of the time, if you know what I mean. You know, marriage is like that. If you've been married a while, you know exactly what I'm saying. But we had a great time. Uh, we went to uh, the island of Kauai, and we wanted to splurge a little bit, and we did some different things, and we did a, a cruise and, uh, and, and some different things. And then kind of the, high, the big one is we went on a helicopter ride. Okay, we took the helicopter ride, and it goes all the way around the island of Kauai, and you get to see some coasts that you can't drive to, and, and then they fly into this partially collapsed volcano, and you literally are in there, and he just spins the helicopter around while you're in there, and you see all these waterfalls. They just kind of come out of the rocks and stuff. It's spectacular to see that. But there is one problem with this whole thing. There were no, no doors on the helicopter, Okay, and, 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 and I'm kind of a terra firma kind of guy, you know. I, I like planet Earth. I've never been in a helicopter. And so this whole issue of getting in a helicopter without doors was a little bit scary to me. It created some trust issues for me. Okay, and so we lift off the ground, my first experience, and we're flying. And the, the side of the helicopter, literally that far from my hip is nothing. It's what was there. And so we take off and we start to fly around. I've got the camera, of course, and Joel give me the pictures. And so here's my first pictures I'm taking. <laughs> yeah, got, got, yeah, got pictures. They, they just, they're not, they weren't very good. We deleted lots of those pictures and stuff. I, I just, it, it, I was not, I, I have to admit, I was nervous. I, I was, I was just nervous. And so after about... 10 minutes that we're in the air, it's an hour plus of a flight, but, you know, I, I needed to have a little self-talk, you know, a little prayer time, if you will, and, and talk to the Lord, because I needed to trust in the pilot and the helicopter. If I was going to enjoy the ride at all, I needed to trust in that. I needed to, 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 to surrender, if you will, to the competency of the pilot who's been doing it for decades and he knew what he was doing and this machine that seemed to be running just fine. And so I said a little prayer, said, Lord, I'm, I'm going to try and enjoy myself and get over it. And uh, guess what? I did. I had a great flight. It was lots of fun. And uh, I just saw some spectacular stuff once, once I really surrendered myself to the, to the guy that was in charge, which was the pilot up there. In fact, right at the end, uh, I actually stuck my head out the helicopter and looked straight down. And then I learned another fact. There's like a 300-mile-an-hour wind that's blowing straight down on you 
when you lean out of a helicopter. And so don't do that. Just enjoy the view and, 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 and be comfortable and trust the pilot. You see, I had to surrender in order to enjoy. And that's really not a popular word these days, you know. We, we, we don't like the word surrender. We don't use the word surrender in positive connotations very often. Our nation sees any kind of surrender. It's a defeat. We're, we're defeated, you know. Uh, nations don't want to surrender. The United States doesn't surrender. Never. Politicians, when they have to give a concession speech, I've spent $8 million and I lost, okay? And they're not happy about doing that. Yeah, they put on the right face and they try and say all these words and stuff that make it sound good. But the truth is, I surrender. I give up. I lost. They, they, they don't seem happy about it. Sports teams. You, you know, sports teams. You don't want your sports team to give up. I mean, the Giants. Oh, we're down the, to the Cardinals three games. Nobody wins three games in a series. What, would you like that? The Giants said, hey, why don't we just call it a series and we'll go home. Cardinals, you go to the World Series. We're not going to win three games in a row, right? Wrong. That's right. Look where the, the Giants are now, man. They're, they're, they're on the brink of, of, of doing it again. It's really cool. They didn't wave the white flag. They didn't surrender. See, we don't like surrender. We don't want to uh, raise a, uh, wave the right flag. And, and sports teams, you know, uh, are, excuse me, in relationships. In relationships. We, we, yeah, surrender is not a real popular word even there, you know. Uh, words like surrender, submission, defeat, oppression, domination, all fit under the same distasteful subheading of being something undesirable. That's going to be totally undesirable to be in that type of a position, if you will. Men, you're a loser if you surrender. Men, don't quit. Don't stop. Go forward. Women, don't surrender. Be your own woman. You are a woman. Hear you roar. Okay? Yeah. Especially don't let any men have any authority over you. One dictionary offers these definitions. To yield to the possession or power of another. To deliver up possession of on demand or under duress. To give oneself up to some influence, chorus, emotion. Kind of like he surrendered himself to a life of hardship. To give up, abandon, or relinquish. To yield or resign in favor of another. And one definition which we're going to kind of take a look at now is to give oneself up as into the power of another. To submit or to yield. Generally speaking, in our culture, not a great word. We don't want to surrender anything. Yet on closer inspection, the Bible is clear that there is one type of surrender that is not only good for us, it's required. If we are going to be followers of Christ, we must surrender our lives to God. God makes it clear throughout the Bible that we are first to surrender our heart before we go about the business of obedience. Until I surrendered to the competence of the pilot, I was not going to enjoy the ride. In Hosea 6, it says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. 
You see, God wants our activities to be a reflection of our heart. The truth is, most Christians find obedience easier than surrender. And it was true of the religious leaders back then, 2,000 years ago, in Israel, before and during the life of Christ. Look at Matthew 23 with me. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Jesus gives this scathing indictment. These are the religious leaders of the country, and this is what he says to them. That's his indictment of them. You see, they were more interested in the responsibilities of their faith than they were in the object of their faith. And it's true in our church today. Most of what we see in here is about how we act as Christians. Go to any radio or TV show and you're probably going to hear it. God wants you to do this. He wants you to do that. Behave this way. Say these things. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with being obedient to God. I want us to be obedient to God. We're called to be obedient to God. I want to make sure I stress that. But that's not the foundation of our faith. That's the result of our faith. It's the result of what we receive for God. If, if your religion is based upon how you live your life, you've missed the gospel. Because our faith is, is what it's about. Our religion, if you will, is based upon our faith in Christ. The result of faith is the love of God reflected in the people of God. And so we want to live that life. But check this out. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is simply saying your life, your work, whatever it is that you are about has zero value if it is not based on the love of God. It's God's love that makes everything have value. Without it, all Paul is saying is, you're making a bunch of noise. You're just making noise without the love of God in your life. And the good news is this. We have a father that is extravagant with his love, excessively extravagant with his love. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15, and we're going to take a look at the portrait of the prodigal father. Okay, so go ahead and turn there. Now, I already see some people going, oh, I think you got that one wrong, Bobby. That's the portrait of the prodigal son, as that, that picture clearly depicts there as the son comes back to the father. But there's a common uh, misunderstanding of what that word prodigal means. I asked a bunch of folks there, and, and, and a lot of people take that word prodigal to mean kind of rebellious. You know, he was a rebellious son or a disobedient son. But the word prodigal actually means 
to be extravagant, excessively extravagant. You could be wastefully extravagant, over-the-top extravagant. And I think I have the title right. Let's read. Luke 15, verse 11. This is God's word. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and then squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feel in the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let's just stop there for a second. Let's set a little context here so we understand what's going on. Okay, this is in the time of Christ that this story has been told. And there are certain things that the Jewish people could do and could not do. And one of the knots was pigs. You didn't own them. You didn't eat them. You didn't touch them. You didn't even get close to them. Pigs were verboten. They, they, you had nothing to do with them. And God set it up that way for whatever reason he had in mind for the Jewish people. And when we read about this son and what he's done is he's been hired to slop the pigs. He's a pig slopper. You don't get any lower on the scale of employment back in that day than slopping pigs for a Gentile. But that's what he was doing. Jesus is drawing this picture of the utter collapse of this son's life as he told this story. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the robe. Put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, the title of this story comes from the son taking his inheritance and he kind of squanders his money real quick and runs out of it. But I submit to you, this, this story is not about the son. It's not. He did what a million other sons have done over the period of time. He got selfish and greedy, and he made some bad decisions. Look, sons do that. I've got two sons. I know that. Okay? I was a son. I know it. Near as I can tell, about half the people on this planet have been sons. Okay? And there have been millions of them that have made bad decisions, like this son. Greedy decisions. But in this story, we see a father whose love covers 
every transgression ever committed against him. That's the father, the loving father that we see in this story. Now, again, this story was told about 2,000 years ago. That was, in a, that was really a, a patriarchal society. It was a, a male-led structure. And so the, the, the father or the oldest male in the family, the oldest father in the family, the grandfather or great-grandfather, was the guy that was in charge of the family. So when we read in verse 11 that the son went and asked him for his inheritance, right away we see the incredible disrespect that happened in this moment there. You see, what the son did was he went and said to the father, Father, I, I want my inheritance now. Would you be dead to me and give me my money? Because, see, that's the way you got your inheritance. The father dies and you get the money. The son has said to the father, be dead and give me my money. I don't want to wait for you. I want it now. Now, that would be an insult today for sure. It, it was egregious back then in that type of a society. I could see my son coming to me right now. Hey, hey, Dad, could I have my inheritance now? I'd be like, uh, yeah, five bucks. <laughs> see ya. Okay. Now, no chance is, is that going to happen to any of us today. And back then in that culture, it was horrible for the son to do that. No self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with that son again. Nothing. He's done. He'd have every right to say, that boy said, I'm dead, so he's dead to me. We're finished. But that's not what happened. That's not what the father does. The son takes his money turns his back on his family, leaves, goes to another country, and wastes his money. He's, he, that's his prodigality right there. He's wasting his money, and soon he's broke, and he's got to get a job, and he gets to slop the pigs. And it doesn't get any worse than that. Yet he starts to come to his senses. He starts to think this thing through and go, Wow, I can't believe I did this. I ought to, my dad fed people better than this guy feeds people. And he has a change of heart and he heads back. Now that dad has every right to say, that boy is dead. That son's coming back here? I don't think so. But that's not what happens. It says, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The first extravagant act of the father is that he welcomes the son. He saw the boy from a distance and he runs to him. Now listen, fathers did, back then didn't go running out to meet a son, much less a disobedient son, much less a son that's truly dead to the family. Fathers didn't do that. He should have been in the main tent waiting for that son to come in making the boy stand in silence as he finishes his current business and then deals with him appropriately and harshly but that's not what he does 
Instead, it's, he runs. Now, you, back then, they couldn't just run. They wore several layers of clothing. That's the way they dressed, and, 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 they, and they were full length. And so if you tried to run those things, you'd just go flat on your face. They literally talk about girding up your loincloths in, in the Bible. And so what they're talking about is taking all those skirts. They, they just take that skirt and gather it in the front and try and get a little knot, and then they can hold it, and then they could run a little bit with that thing. That's the way they, what they had to do for a guy to run that was in uh, uh, full dress, that was dressed normally in the day and stuff. And see, it says that the father just hitches up his clothes like that. In order to run, he had to do that. He had to expose his legs. Patriarchs didn't expose their legs, and they didn't run out to meet disobedient children. But this father does. In the story, Jesus is describing a God that has an incredible love for his children. That's you. And that's me. In 1 John 4, uh, 4.19 it says. We love because he first loved us. It's a proactive statement there. God proactively loves us. He, 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 just a, he, he wants to love us. He's waiting to love us. It's right there all the time. The love never ceases. It never goes away. In Psalm 103.8 it says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding. In love, abounding in love. Can you remember a time when your heart felt like it would burst from love, just abounding with love? I can, I can remember many incidents in my life with my family, my wife, my sons, my daughters. I mean, that, that, oh, man, they're just great things. One particularly stands out to me is for my son, Matthew. Matthew is in the Air Force, and uh, he's, he's served his country well. And he's done two tours of duty. He's been to uh, Iraq and came back uh, healthy, thankfully. And, and he's been to Afghanistan and came back. Now, we didn't get to be with him when he returned from uh, Iraq, just the way it all worked out and stuff. We weren't there when he got off the plane, and we didn't get to see that one there. But when he came back from Afghanistan, we, we got to go. And we got the whole family together, and we headed down there, and, 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 and Robin and the kids and everybody there. We are all there. We're all gathered. We're there to meet my son as he comes back from Afghanistan. And so the plane comes in, and it finally comes in and lands, and it comes in in circles and pulls up and stuff, and it stands just parked right there. And we have a line. Don't cross the line. Travis Air Force Base, you know, they want you to be serious about these things. Wait right here. And so we're waiting, you know. And finally, the door opens and three guys walk out. Three men came out first. My son is one of the first three that walked off the plane. And that's a moment when you, you, you want to hitch up your, your loincloths and you want to run and you want to welcome your son back home. I was so proud of my boy. And... Um, those are the kind of moments that my heart abounded. That's the Father's love for you. His heart abounds with love for his children. He, he wants to share his love. And so God, in his great extravagant love, simply gives us this invitation. He says, Come. That's our invitation. Come. Come to me. The Father's waiting for us. And he's ready to run. He's ready to hug us and welcome us and shower us with his love. 
if we would just come. Come to me now. I know you've been slopping the pigs of dishonesty. I know about the porn slop. I see the slop you have written in all those inappropriate texts. I've seen the slop of hate you have for your ex. I know the slop of your heart. Just come. I'm waiting to run to you and wrap my arms around you, no matter how filthy you are, and welcome you home. That's the love of our Father, and that's his invitation. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Often we talk about kind of the verses in the Bible as Christians and some of us have kind of like our life first or this verse was written for me type verses. This is my verse. God wrote this one for me. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. You see, I know all about living in the slop. I lived in the slop. I ran away from home when I was 15 years old. Uh, that first summer away, I, I slept in a tree most of the time in South Florida. And uh, I ate garbage. And I panhandled money just for one reason, which was to get high. Because that started me down a path that was 20 years in the making. See, I was a triple-A sinner. Abuse. Adultery, addiction. Those were the big three in my life. Those were the things that, that, that I lived out. I, 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 I was so deep in the slop, I didn't even know how to get I didn't even know there was anything better than that. I, had no, I couldn't cognate anything better than that. Yet one day, things started to change, and uh, I'm so thankful for my wife who was faithful and stayed. And a bunch of Christians that started praying for me. I didn't even know these people, but through a wife and Christians and stuff that people started praying and the Spirit of God, things started to change in my life. I can't explain it. I can only give credit to God for it. And in that time, I came across that verse one day and I read that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I cried my eyes out. Boy, 20 years down the road of being weary and burdened. Man, rest. That sounded pretty good to me. And God started to change my life in that time. And not long after that, a few short weeks after that, I was standing in my living room. This is my morning ritual after a night of hard partying. I was getting ready to get high, and God said three things to me. And the first thing God said to me was simply this, I love you. Now, it didn't come through the stereo speakers or anything like that, but I had this distinct sense of God's presence as I was really preparing just to get back in the slop. He said, Bobby, I love you. Come. That was the invitation. Come. You see... God spoke to me, and it changed my life, and uh, I came. Uh, I did. I came. You see, 
God loves you, and he wants you to come, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life. But fortunately, his love doesn't stop there. It doesn't. But wait, there's more. Remember the commercial, the Popeil pocket knife, and it was a toolkit, and it was a fishing rod? I mean, every time you thought there was, but wait, there's more, okay? There's more to God's extravagant love than just the fact that he's going to welcome us. You see, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son gets it. You see that? He, he, he gets it. He's forfeited his rights to the family. Earlier in the passage, we see him, and, and he's practicing saying, look, I, I know I can't get to be your son, but would you just make me a hired hand? That's all I'm asking for. The son understands that he doesn't deserve any type of second chance. But he never gets even to, to his speech. He just confesses his sin. He says, I've sinned against you, against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, quick, quick, servants, quick. In that moment, forgiveness is given like that. The son confesses his sins and the father says, quick, let's move on. You see, the second point of God's extravagant love that we see in this story is that the father forgives the son. Not only does he welcome the son, but he forgives the son. And the father wants to forgive. That's our father in heaven. That's his great love. He's not up there in heaven just waiting impatiently for judgment. Say, so he say, got you now, loser. You too, loser. Oh, yeah. You're going to hell, and I can't wait to see you burn. Oh, yeah. Uh, how do you like it? Well done or extra crispy? That's not our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is, is not waiting impatiently so he can mete out his judgment upon us. He wants just the opposite. He wants us to confess and be saved. That's the Father. But it seems to be that the ball is in our court. In 1 John 1, 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I get into these discussions about election and, and free will and God's sovereignty and man's abilities. And you, we could argue about that for 2,000 years because people have been. I'm not going to do that. But the scripture seems to say in this sense, it says, if we confess our sins. The ball is in our court that if we will come and confess to the Father, he will forgive. The Father says, come, I'll welcome you. Confess, I'll forgive you. If you'll just do these things. But wait, there's more. That's right. Let's say it again. But wait, there's more. Not only does he forgive. No, his prodigal extravagance doesn't stop there. He forgets. He forgets. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God doesn't seem to see them anymore. I don't know if forgive and forget is the right 
theological terms, but that's what it seems. God just doesn't seem to see our sins anymore. They're gone. They don't exist. And when he forgives us our sin, he gives us this invitation. Receive. Receive it. Receive the forgiveness. And for most of us, that's really hard. That's a difficult thing. The second thing God said to me that day as I was standing in my living room was, Bobby, I love you. And then he said, I forgive you. And you see, the problem with those slopaholics, we know ourselves. Oh, yeah, we know who we are. We know our hearts. We know the slop-encrusted scum that surrounds them. We know we don't deserve God's forgiveness. And more difficult than that is we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. We don't want to forgive. We hold on to the sins of the past and we beat ourselves up with them over and over and over again. And see, if you will receive his forgiveness, if you will truly receive it, then you can let the sins of the past go. That ain't, that, 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 that ain't easy. That's hard. I'm not saying that it just comes real easy. You, you've got to spend a lot of time in God's word, praying and trusting. But you need to let those sins go. Those you've committed and then... When you've learned to truly receive forgiveness and let those sins go, then you will learn how to truly forgive others. And I say that because we hold on to the sins committed against us. And a lot of times we hold on to those because truth is we've never really received the forgiveness of the Father. We've, we've, we've heard it up here and we can cognate it, but we, we, we haven't experienced it at the depth of our heart. But wait, there's more. there's more. God's prodigality doesn't stop there. The father welcomes his son. The father forgives his son. And then the father does this. He lavishes his love on the son. You see, God's extravagance, his excessive extravagance, is the fact that he lavishes his love on the son. Quick, bring the robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, if we read on in the story, we see the reaction of the eldest son, the good son, the hardworking son, the son that stood by dad through thick and thin, does whatever's necessary for the family. We read about this son. And he's hurt. Really, Dad? You embarrass the family. You hitch up your robe. You run down bare-legged to meet him when he forfeited his right to be in the family. That's what you did, Dad. You dismiss his greed and his sinfulness without a bit of punishment. That's what you're doing, Dad? And now you want to throw him the biggest party of the year? That's what you want to do? I never got a party like that. But that's what you want to do? Kill a fattened calf? The whole thing? Throw him a party? Really? And the father says, yeah. Really. And now you can understand the depth of my love for him and for you. That's the father that we have in heaven. The father says he was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. 
and we are going to have a party. Let's celebrate. You see, God wants us to enjoy the ride with him. He wants us to celebrate his extravagant love. John 10.10 is the theme verse for our series. It simply says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That we would have a rich and satisfying life. And that's his invitation to us. Celebrate. Come, receive, and celebrate the extravagant love of the Father. The Father wants to celebrate every time someone comes and receives his extravagant love. It's a party that never stops, as near as I can tell. Just before telling this parable, Jesus concluded another story, and he said this. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every time someone repents, there's a party, a celebration going on in heaven. God is a celebratory God. He loves the people of God celebrating the extravagant love of the Father. In the book of Revelation, when John is describing the ongoing celebration, he tells these creatures that circulate around the throne or he tells of these creatures that are circulating around the throne and, and John is drawing this picture of, of, of a heavenly vision that he has and he's trying to kind of put it in earthly terms and, and he tells the description of these creatures and it's all kind of wild and you know, I try and picture what they look like and I just simply can't but one thing he is very clear with these creatures over and over again are all around the throne of the Father and they say this Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's why we celebrate today. We have a holy and righteous God incapable of doing wrong who is excessively extravagant with his love. Our weekly gatherings, that's what we're doing in here right now. We celebrate our Father's excessive love, his extravagant love. And we worship him for the gifts that we've received from him. That's eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when, when, we, when we're saved through our faith, it starts with our surrender to God. We surrender ourselves to the God and are saved as we come and confess. And we enter into this beautiful, rich, and satisfying life. That goes way beyond planet Earth. And so we're going to do that right now. We're going to celebrate the extravagant love of the Father. Let's stand.